The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome Ms. Lena Brook. She is Director of Food Campaigns, Healthy People and Thriving Communities Program at the Natural Resources Defense Council based in San Francisco, California. Ms. Brooks' work centers on ending the overuse of antibiotics in livestock and advancing a sustainable and healthy food system for all. Prior to joining NRDC, Ms. Brooks was a strategic communications consultant and co-directed Healthcare Without Harm's Healthy Food in Healthcare Initiative, also based in California. Ms. Brooke holds a bachelor's degree in anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley, and a master's in environmental studies from the prestigious Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. She is one of the authors of a hot-off-the-press report titled Grow Organic, the Climate, Health, and Economic Case for Expanding Organic Agriculture. This is a joint report with Arizona State University's Center for Sustainable Food Systems and Californians for Pesticide Reform, but it applies to a global urgency for agricultural reforms in this age of climate urgency. Welcome, Lena. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, this report is such a gem. It is comprehensive and it really hits on the most important features of agriculture as we face increasing challenges from climate change. Before we dive in, what led you to the Natural Resources Defense Council? Yeah, that's a great question. For those who aren't familiar, the NRDC is an international environmental nonprofit organization. We're based in New York, but we do have offices in Beijing and in New Delhi, India. And so hence the international scope of our work. And we also have the honor of having more than 3 million members and activists that engage across the campaigns that we work on. And I've been at NRDC for almost eight years. I have worked closely with NRDC staff for the better part of my career here in California. And I couldn't have been more excited to join the team here because I think NRDC is one of the most well-regarded, respected, and effective environmental nonprofit organizations that we have in the United States today. And it's really exciting to expand our work in the food and agriculture sector as we have in recent years. Yeah, I agree. Well, why this report and why now? As you mentioned, we are living in a time of climate crisis. And The food system is a contributor to that crisis. We know that here in the United States, almost 20% of our greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to the food system if you take a really expansive beyond the farm gate purview. And if you take a more narrow glance the way that the U.S. EPA does in its greenhouse gas inventory, that number is about 11%. Either way, that's a significant contribution. The good news is 
that we can also, depending on the practices that we use in producing our food and agriculture products, we can also convert our food system from being a contributor to climate change to being part of the climate solution. So that's one really important piece of the puzzle. Unfortunately, in addition to the climate crisis, we are also living through a variety of other significant stressors, whether it's economic stress in the agriculture sector for producers, whether it's incredible health inequities faced by our farm workers and the communities that they live in. There's, of course, zoonotic diseases like COVID-19 like swine flu and others that are emerging from industrialized livestock operations or from animals and making their way to people. All of those have a connection to the food system. And so one of the reasons that we're really excited about organic agriculture is because it takes a systems approach to growing food and fiber. And the practices that are embedded in the organic system allow us to be solving multiple, or at least trying to move the needle on multiple problems at the same time. What is it about organic in particular that makes it especially beneficial when it comes to protecting climate? There are three ways that organic agriculture and the practices that are embedded in organic agriculture can help move the needle on climate change. The first is that organic simply has a lower climate footprint. It emits less greenhouse gas emissions as a system, in large part because organic farmers don't rely on fossil fuel-based inputs like pesticides and fertilizers. There are a number of studies that show that if we just took synthetic nitrogen fertilizers out of food production which is exactly what happens in organic systems, that could lower greenhouse gas emissions by about 20% just from that one change alone. And there's, I think, an understudied area of science is the pesticide contribution to greenhouse gas emissions and to climate change. And that's an ongoing conversation that we're involved in here in California. But based on the synthetic inputs piece alone, we know that organic has a lower greenhouse gas footprint. The other piece, the second piece, is that inherent to certified organic production practices are soil-boosting strategies like composting, cover cropping, crop rotation, and often diversified farming. So all of those put together, combined with not relying on these synthetic chemicals, not only make soil healthier, but it also helps that healthier soil draw down more carbon compared to conventional farms. So that's the second reason. And then the third takes on a different perspective on climate change, which is really looking at resilience. We know that climate change is happening. And what we're seeing is that organic farmers and ranchers, because they're stewarding the land in a different way, because they're emphasizing healthy soil practices, that means that their farms are more able to withstand extreme weather events like droughts or flooding that we're starting to see a lot more of. And there was actually a farming trial done that looked at organic yields, and they found that yields were actually about 40% higher than non-organic farms in drought years. 
So there's research backing that up and we're seeing it play out in real time. I think you must be talking about the Rodale research. Yeah. The 40 year trial. 40 year trial. Talk about an exhaustive study. If anyone has any doubt to the benefits of organic farming on food quality as well as soil quality with regard to resilience, one need look no further than the Rodale trial. I wanted to share a story. You know, I used to be on the Organic Farming Research Foundation Board as well as the Midwestern Organic Sustainable Education Service Board. And so in those positions, I had an opportunity to meet with farmers. And I remember one of the farmers being celebrated because during a deluge, his farm did not have all of the runoff that his neighbors who had quote unquote conventional farms experienced. So your point about resilience during droughts and deluge is extremely well taken and hearing farmers' stories makes all of it become so much more real. And that was another thing that I really appreciated about this report. Not only do you have the science, but you also have farmer experiences. And I wonder, how did you find the farmers that you included in this report? We worked really hard. And when I say we, this was a collaboration between myself, but also my colleague, Allison Johnson, and the team at Arizona State University at the Speedy Center. We gave it a great deal of thought as to how to represent organic farmers and ranchers throughout the diversity of American agriculture, and then also trying to think about regions of the country where you may not expect to have thriving organic farms, like maybe Arizona is one of those places, or maybe in the Southeast. And we tried to balance smaller semi-urban farmers with large-scale producers and kind of everything in between. So it took about a year and a half for those farmer profiles to come together. And I believe one of them is actually a farm worker profile as well. So that's another kind of vantage point on organic that we wanted to make sure to include. You've broken this report into a description of what organic is and isn't. You've got organic and climate, organic and health, organic and economics. And I think that during these troubled economic times where we see an increase in mental health issues on farms, we know that farmer suicide is a problem. If we could help those rural communities get an economic spark and become thriving again, um, you know, anybody who's driven through farming communities can see what's happened over the course of industrialization. And the communities are truly struggling economically. But your report shows that organic farming can actually boost farming communities. How does that happen exactly? Well, first and foremost, organic is the fastest growing sector in the U.S. food industry. And I can say that in 2020, sales surpassed $50 billion annually. So that's one piece of the puzzle. There's so much demand for organic, which should create opportunity for producers. On the other hand, we aren't keeping up with this demand. We're a net organic importer right now. And this is especially true in terms of organic grains. So that's something that I think about a lot. It's like, how do we fix that equation and rebalance it a little bit in a way that can help stabilize and create economic opportunity and vitality for the rural communities that you're speaking of? 
we know that historically, organic farms have been the key drivers of vibrant local food systems. Those farmers and ranchers are the pioneers of all the different direct-to-consumer sales programs that so many communities are lucky to have, like farmers markets, like CSA programs, farm-to-school, farm-to-institution. There's so many flavors of that that organic farmers helped create. And what that means for them is really higher profits because those supply chains are shorter. And interestingly, we also saw during, especially at the height of the COVID pandemic in 2020, that those shorter supply chains actually meant increased resilience in the face of that stressor, just like it might also play a role in increased resilience in the face of climate change. So there have been several studies done looking at these so-called organic hotspots, which show that in regions of the country that have a high concentration of organic producers and then also processors, maybe aggregation facilities, like the whole support network that you would need to get food from farm to table within a community, it really creates a huge difference in terms of economic vibrancy. And those local farms, those organic farms are creating jobs. The investments are circling back through local economies. It really helps stabilize what's otherwise it feels like so many rural communities are in freefall right now. Yeah. Lena, let me take one break because we're halfway through. And I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Lena Brooke. She is Director of Food Campaigns at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And we are talking about a report of which she is one of the authors titled Grow Organic, the Climate, Health, and Economic Case for Expanding Organic Agriculture. I'm really glad you brought up COVID, Lena, because I saw this in my own community. There were reports of food in grocery stores not being available, but our local farmer's market was thriving. In fact, I think business was probably up for those farmers who sold direct to consumers. And those farmers bent over backwards to get food to their customers because we had developed relationships. So if you were paying attention, it was an answer to what might come in the future. You've heard medical practitioners, for example, say this isn't going to be our last pandemic. We had better re-regionalize our food system with the kind of foods that keep us healthy. Your health section of this report is quite exhaustive. We know, for example, that children who are exposed to pesticides that are not allowed in the organic system are much more likely to develop cancers. And I think if you'd ask anyone, if you had a choice between eating something that had been sprayed with a toxic chemical or eating one that hadn't, I think most people would say, yeah, I want the food that's produced without the poison. But our policies don't necessarily support our organic farming systems. And I like that this report has a section devoted to policy solutions. And I wonder if we could talk about some of those. You know, what can we do as eaters to get behind solutions that can really set us up for a sustainable future? Excellent question. I love nothing more than sharing our ideas about policy change that we know is so necessary to set food and farming in the United States in a different course. And I say in the United States, but really 
what we do has such a profound influence on the world. And sometimes I wish the United States would pay more attention and maybe learn the lessons of others. And especially in the case of organic agriculture, I'm really excited about what's going on in Europe with their farm to fork initiative, where they're both ramping up investment in organic production and at the same time setting goals for themselves around pesticide use reduction. That is a model that I would love to see imported to the United States. Right now, as you're probably aware, there have been so many conversations and preparations in play for the 2023 Farm Bill. And in preparation for that, one of the things that NRDC has been working on both federally and also in California are policies that are designed to ease the organic transition process for producers to reduce barriers to organic. So that's one bucket. The other missing piece that we would like to see addressed in the coming Farm Bill is increased funding and prioritization for organic research. That has been a real weak spot where so much of the energy and resources of our federal food and ag dollars are going toward everything conventional. And in order for organic growers to maximize the potential of this system, they need help. They need seeds and breeds of animals that are adapted to organic practices. And we need our best and brightest researchers at land-grant universities and beyond to be thinking about these things. We also need to expand technical assistance programs to help organic producers when they run into trouble. You know, it's a whole different system of farming, and we want producers that are taking this on to have as much support as possible so that they can thrive. And finally, the other piece that needs to go hand in hand with the ones I just mentioned is market development. So it would be really exciting to see governmental procurement really prioritize climate-friendly organic farming above all else in school meals programs, in hospital procurement, in Department of Defense purchasing, you know, across the whole of government, I can imagine what a difference it would make if we put our public dollars to use that way. Lena, I'm realizing that while you and I are comfortable talking about organic versus conventional, maybe our listeners don't fully grasp the differences. And when we say conventional agriculture, we're talking about industrial systems that depend on chemical fertilizers and pesticides. And we use this word conventional, but it's kind of a smokescreen, I think, for really what's involved versus an organic system. So why don't we jump back to the very first section of this report and talk about what organic means exactly? Sure. That's an excellent point. So Organic, according to the rules and regulations of the National Organic Program, that's one thing that I think is also worth mentioning, is that organic is the only certified label that has the force of federal law behind it because organic was first passed into law in 1990 in the Organic Food Systems Production Act. So it is unique and really powerful for that reason. And what the rules and regulations of organic say is that They want farmers to invest in healthy soil with, as I was mentioning earlier, composting, cover crops, crop rotation, this host of practices that we know are really beneficial. We also want farmers and ranchers to be using natural pest control measures, organic feed, 
and as much time as possible on pasture for animals. We want them to be protecting the ecosystems around their farms. And what they're not allowed to do is to use synthetic fertilizers. A few, a very small like handful of pesticides are allowed in organic, but that is a very complex process that's overseen by the National Organic Standards Board. And for part and parcel with organic is just this idea that it's essentially free of synthetic pesticides with the exception of a very small number that are regulated. We're not allowed to use antibiotics or growth hormones in organic production. And then, of course, genetically modified organisms, irradiation, sewage sludge, those are all no-nos. And then when you're thinking about processed organic food, the type of food additives that are allowed are very, very limited. So it's moving toward as much of inspired by nature production practices and as clean as possible in the processed food context. So if a farmer is listening to this conversation, they get a hold of this excellent report and they say, you know, I do want to protect my family. I do want to protect my neighbors, my water, my soil. I think I want to switch over to organic. That's where the transition period comes in. And they can't just do it overnight. They have to go through a three-year transition. And is there financial support for farmers to make that transition? So that three-year period is a really uncertain one for a lot of producers, especially those that are coming into organic for the first time, Uh, maybe less so if you're expanding your organic acreage and already have your best practices dialed in. So that period comes with a great deal of uncertainty and financial risk because farmers are expected to try on a lot of new practices, and there's some trial and error involved in that. And during that three-year period, I think it's also important to mention that while producers are using these organic practices, they are not allowed to market what they grow as organic until they are actually certified after that three-year period. So given that, we think that they should receive both financial and technical assistance resources to ease this process. That is not something that historically has happened. In fact, I would say that the whole organic system has been more or less left to the vagaries of the marketplace to survive. And it's incredible that it is has grown and thrived as it has. And the vast majority of, as I said earlier, of our public dollars go toward supporting that climate risky and unhealthy conventional food system. So this is something that the transition process and really transforming it is something that NRDC and many of our allies have been working on for the last few years. And we're having a fair amount of success with it, actually. In August, the USDA announced a $300 million organic transition program that is intended to provide technical assistance services and market development and increasing access for organic producers to risk management programs that the USDA offers that they don't typically have access to. So there's a lot of exciting potential there. And that program is going to be rolled out through six regional partnerships across the country. And that is something that through a bill called the Growing Organic Food Systems Act, our goal is to take a lot of what's encompassed in that USDA transition program and make it permanent in the farm bill. Now, there's another policy piece here, and one that I know from talking to farmers, that an organic farmer is responsible for establishing buffer zones 
to guard against pesticide drift from neighboring farms that use those chemicals. And it would seem to me that the farmer who's using the poison should be responsible to protect his neighbors that are not. And yet it's the organic farmer that has to pay that price. And that is assuming that the buffers are even going to work. So if you, for example, are living where commodity corn and soy is grown, where an ever-growing number of herbicides are applied to those two crops, that region of the country is especially at risk for farmers who say, you know, I don't want to do this corn and soy thing anymore. I want to grow more fruits and vegetables that my community can eat. But they've got a whammy coming from A, they've got to establish buffer zones, and B, if they're hit by a pesticide that drifts, they really are not compensated. It's a long process. It's expensive. And farmers don't have that kind of money to hire the legal assistance that they need to fight those damages. Yeah, I could not agree more that it's really unfair and painful to know that organic farmers are swimming upstream in this way and that maintaining buffer zones is such an incredibly difficult process, especially in certain parts of the country where you're sort of surrounded by farms that are relying on pesticides and where pesticide drift is such an issue. Ironically, we have a similar problem in farm worker communities where those same pesticides drift into people's homes, into schools, into their workplaces. And toxic pesticide use creates such profound harms to both the health and economic vitality of rural communities. So I'm glad you raised this up. I am definitely going to put my thinking cap on and really trying to think through how we can consider policy change to address this issue. It is incredibly important. And unfortunately, in order to make the radical change that we're talking about, it means going up against a group of opponents, which is not only the kind of mainstream agricultural interests represented by farm bureaus across the country, but also the chemical industry that often works side by side with the Farm Bureau and, and their ilk. So it's a tough fight. And I think it's a very worthwhile one to take on. Absolutely. You know, we are out of time, but I want to lead people to the Grow Organic report. It raises awareness and it provides direction for where we can all go and what we need to support. Do you want to leave our listeners with one last quick message? Yeah, I realize that in addition to policy change, which is absolutely essential, continuing to express support for organic wherever folks shop for their groceries is also incredibly important. That's something that consumers have been doing. And that demand and that passion for climate-friendly, healthy food is what got us to this place of really being able to center organic as a solution in all of the different contexts that we've talked about. So I both encourage your listeners to communicate their support for organic farming to their elected officials, especially with the 2023 Farm Bill coming down the pike. I think that would be a super important time to convey that message and also to continue to look for organic and hopefully, when possible, buy organic at the grocery store, at farmers markets to support the producers that are growing that good food. 
All right. That is a great closing message. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in beautiful Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Lena Brook, Director of Food Campaigns at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you so much for being my guest. And I will provide a link to this report for our listeners. I really appreciate that. And I so appreciate the conversation and your time. It's been a pleasure.